BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When you think of tornadoes, you probably think of a big supercell in Tornado Alley in Texas, Oklahoma, or Kansas. However, the idea of a tornado alley can be misleading. Tornadoes in the Deep South are just as likely to occur and perhaps more deadly than in the Great Plains. Today's guest is part of one of the largest and most comprehensive severe storm field campaigns in the southeastern United States. That field program is called Heralds, Propagation, Evolution, and Rotation in Linear Storms. Tony Liza is from the University of Oklahoma as a postdoctoral researcher there and is here today to discuss the plan for the research and what scientists hope to discover. Tony, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's my pleasure, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I got to start off with the question that we ask every Weather Geeks guest. How'd you become a Weather Geek? Yeah, it's uh, I think there's a lot of people who are probably in a similar position that I'm in, in that I've always been interested in weather as long as I can remember. And I was especially scared of storms as a kid. So we had a really bad storm. One of these squall lines are what we call quasi-linear convective systems or QLCSs, which I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about today. We had one roll through uh, a neighbor, the neighborhood I was living in when I was seven years old and did a path of damage actually back in, in May of 97. And it actually injured people. And back then, we didn't understand as much as we do now about tornadoes that form out of these lines of storms. So the, the, the event that went through our neighborhood was not classified as a tornado at the time. When you look back now, it probably would, would have been, would be today if it had occurred now. Um, but it injured several people, damaged a bunch of homes in our neighborhood. And and right as close as about one block south of our house is where it passed. And, and so I was already scared of storms at that point. And from that point, I was terrified of storms. Um, we would have nightmares maybe once a week or so initially, and then they would, it would be less over time. But for years, I was scared of storms. Uh, and so it's one of those things like it's a knowledge is power sort of situation. The more you know, the, the it's like you feel like you have more control over it, even if you don't really have control over it. And so, you know, through that, I my fear kind of transitioned into a fascination. And that's that's how I've gotten to where I'm at today. So that you're right. That's a very typical story that I've heard over the years in, in doing this podcast, you know, this fear of turning that into knowledge. And I think that's yeah. uh, something that is very consistent with many of our listeners. I'm certain that there are listeners to Weather Geeks podcast that maybe have a fear of storms, but are also fascinated by them. And, and candidly, thunder and lightning and tornadoes, they're scary things. And so it's not unusual to be scared of them, particularly as, as, a, as a child, but perhaps even as an adult, because they can do some significant damage. Uh, and we're going to talk about, you know, these damaging storms, tornadoes, QLCSs in the podcast today. But let me give your full background uh, so that po people know uh, just uh, how qualified you are to be talking about this today. 
sure. you were a summer to the 2010 summer student volunteer at the National Weather Service, Chicago, Romeoville, Illinois, where you created a database of strong, violent, violent tornadoes in that area. Uh, you have your bachelor's degree in meteorology from Valparaiso or Valpo, as many of us know it as in, in the field. My, my, my college, uh, John Knox at the University of Georgia, uh, used to be at Valpo. Mm-hmm. You have a master's in atmospheric sciences from the University of Alabama, Huntsville, and a doctorate of philosophy or PhD in atmospheric sciences from UAH as well. Uh, you have recently moved from there to the uh, University of Oklahoma in a postdoctoral research associate uh, capacity at that acronym that I'll let you say, uh, affiliated with OU, but also an affiliation with the National Severe Storms Lab or NSSL. So you are with CIWRO, which is a cooperative institute, but uh, I understand it went through a little name change recently. Yeah, well, yeah. So the it, this used to be known as the SIMS, the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies, but last year it changed to the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations, which the uh, abbreviation was shortened down to CIRO. So I'm I'm a postdoc at OU CIRO, uh, affiliated with the National Severe Storms Laboratory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think many of us knew it from it by its old acronym for, for mm-hmm. perhaps decades. So it's taking a bit of time for some of us old schoolers to get that new name. I certainly understand why the change change. All right. Let's talk tornadoes in the south. Yeah, I, I know sure. that we've had the Vortex Southeast project and um, perhaps you can give the, the listeners a little quick one on one overview. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but. Generally, why is there so much interest now in studying tornadoes in the South? So you know, the, for several decades, storms were studied on the plains because it's easier to set up equipment on the plains, to set up radars, to take mobile equipment out on, into the field and study storms out here where you have wide open and relatively flat expanses of Earth, uh, you know, less population density. But when you get into the Southeast, you you get into an environment that is also very prone to severe storms and tornadoes, an environment that um, it, where the storms that form, they form in somewhat different environments. So they form at different times of year. They can form more often during the winter time, during the fall and you know, in early spring than they do on the plains. You get a lot of storms that occur at night. You and you get these storms that form. In, instead of you do get these individual supercell storms that form uh, like they do on the plains, but you also get a lot of events in the southeast where they form from these long lines of storms or these QLCSs as we mentioned earlier. And those storms are a little less well understood than the um, big supercell storms in terms of how the tornadoes form. We also know that the storms in the southeast form in environments with much less instability than they do out on the plains with more water vapor, more moisture in the lower atmosphere. And and, and oftentimes more wind shear, more change that wind direction speed with height. And so it's a it's a different environment in which the storms form in in the southeast versus on the plains, an environment that hasn't been as well studied over time. And then that gets compounded by. The fact that population density is higher in the southeast United States, even in the rural areas, you go into many rural areas of the southeast, it's not going to look like driving through Nebraska or western Kansas or, you know, the panhandles of Oklahoma or Texas. There are people there. There are a lot of people there. They're just a little more spread out than they are in the towns or the cities. 
So you have a lot, you have a, a higher population density. It's a vulnerable population because there are relatively high rates of poverty. You know, that there are other factors, you know, historical factors over time that make the, the population more vulnerable. There's high mobile home and manufactured home residency across the Southeast. Those manufactured mobile homes are spread out over the landscape. So it's a combination of an environment that we don't understand as well as the Great Plains severe storms environment and a more vulnerable and more population in general that makes the Southeast a prime candidate for studying severe storms. Of course, it becomes one of the challenges is you also you end up with trees, hills, that population that you have, you know, you can't just put a radar anywhere or, you know, an instrument anywhere. So it, it's taken some time and, and going back to 2015 to develop the methods for how we're really going to robustly observe storms in the Southeast. And now we've reached a point where we feel like we, we've got that, you know, ready to go and we're ready for a big project in the Southeast United States. So this is a really nice overview of many things that I want to talk about today with Dr. Tony Liza. Uh, talking with Dr. Tony Liza from uh, the Cooperative Institute at the University of Oklahoma and affiliated with uh, NSSL as well. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Perils. You know, we are that have some affiliation with the federal system or the federal government. And I spent 12 years of my career at NASA before coming to the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. We love acronyms in the federal government system. And so PERILS is an acronym that stands for Propagation, Evolution and Rotation in Linear Storms. Right. There's a lot of jargon in that. And so certainly the average person probably doesn't understand what a linear storm is, although it's very clear to us what they are. So I, I want to just dig deep into um, what is perils? What is a QLCS? And all of those questions that mean are very meaningful to you and I as meteorologists or atmospheric scientists. But uh, for my wife or cousin that may be listening to this podcast, what in the world is a linear storm or a QLCS? So let's just geek out a little 101 yeah. geek out here on these linear storms uh, and how they differ from the big supercell storms. And then later on, remind me, because I want to deal with this tornado alley, quote unquote, versus what some have called Dixie alley, because you and I think both agree we hate the term alley. And so we want to kind of yeah. put, uh, we want to kind of deal with that a little bit later in the podcast. But let's get a 101 on what these linear storms are and QLCSs and why they're particularly dangerous. Right. Absolutely. So these QLCSs are, are or quasi-linear convective systems, like you said, are lines of storms. So you can think of a storm as kind of, you know, think of a, a single updraft and a single downdraft. So single upward column of air and a single downward column of air. That's what one single, what we call cell is, one, one convective cell, one storm cell. So a supercell, what makes a supercell unique in the storms that we've studied on the planes, like I said, for decades, is that the the that one single cell features a, a tilted and rotating updraft. And so the combination of the, the tilt and the rotation, especially the rotation of the updraft, allows that storm, that single up-down, updraft, downdraft cell to last for an extended period of time. And that rotation, of course, leads to the dynamics that eventually um, allow a tornado to form. We have some basic understanding that there's still a lot of details we're trying to sort out how tornadoes form even in supercells but we have a basic idea 
these lines of storms, these QLCSs, have multiple, uh, many of these cells, these updraft, downdraft. So you can think of kind of the, a, a line, the whole leading edge of a line has little, has a, like one large updraft area with several more enhanced areas of upward motion along it. And then back behind it where all the rain is falling is one, you know, of multiple downdraft areas, kind of one big zone of downdraft with multiple areas of enhanced downdraft within it. What makes QLCS is harder to understand is that you have all these cells lined up in a row. And so you don't necessarily always understand where the stronger updraft is going to form along that updraft zone along the leading edge, but where the stronger downdraft is going to be in the downdraft zone back in the precipitation. And it's it's hard to predict. And the 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 updraft and downdraft features, unlike a supercell, which is the one single rotating updraft and fairly persistent you know, over time in its evolution, these things develop very quickly. So you have you can have an updraft form very quickly, a, a localized stronger updraft, and then it could get over overrun by the outflow by the cold rush of air associated with all that precip falling and the downdrafts behind it. So you could have that that one strong updraft form in the QLCS, and that might be associated with one of these tornadoes associated with these lines. It could form very quickly and it could disappear very quickly. Sometimes they last longer. We don't fully understand the processes behind that, but sometimes you can get longer lasting uh, updrafts or downdrafts within a, a QLCS. And we don't really understand how, how that occurs all that well. So one of the big, this goes into the evolution portion of the PERILS acronym. How do these things evolve? How do these updrafts, how do these downdrafts evolve? And how do they relate to the circulations in the QLCSs? that produce tornadoes. So that, that's one of the biggest challenges is understanding the, the updrafts and downdrafts within a long line of storms and, and understanding how that relates to this, the production of, of rotation down near the surface. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Tony Liza uh, from the University of Oklahoma and its Cooperative Institute there on meteorology. Uh, we, we told you the name earlier. I'm not going to try to repeat it. Uh, he's also affiliated with the National Severe Storms Lab. And we're talking about perils, a field campaign. And by the way, just a little 101, we do these field campaigns in science because they allow us to get uh, 
a bit more focus on a problem that we may understand or want to understand. And so I want to get into a discussion now with Tony on how you're going to go about this study. And by the way, I understand you're going to be looking at other non-classical tornadoes, uh, tornadic storms as well. Again, we teased the opening of the show talking about the big supercell tornadoes that often people associate with the Great Plains region, <clears throat> those storms and these rotating updrafts, these mesocyclone bearing storms, which we call supercells. But these QLCSs, which you just excellently described, are just one type of non-supercell tornadic event that may also include land spouts, uh, water spouts, and other types of tornadic circulations that don't originate from a parent mesocyclonic circulation. A mesocyclone, by the way, a little, you know, 101, it's just a rotating updraft in a large supercell. Uh, but how are you going to go about your business with perils? I imagine it's going to involve mobile Doppler radars and all types of mobile observations. Just give us a breakdown of who's involved and what they're bringing to the table. And I'm, and I'm not the specific details, but what type of instruments and so forth. Yeah, so we've got, uh, I believe it's 10 partner institutions within the project. So many of them are universities across the United States. Um, I don't want to list them all because I don't want to forget one. And <laughs> yeah, you, can, you, you can check. I, I wrote a Forbes article yeah. on this uh, and you just check out that article because I list all the partners. I show a graphic from the NSSL in Oklahoma on that. So, yeah, just to be safe, neither of us will try to mention everyone today, but I'll refer you there or to the NSSL website on perils. So. So we have, but there are dozens of instrument platforms that will be going out into the field. So we have um, eight mobile Doppler radars. So those are the, the radar systems that, that scan and like the radars you see on TV. There will be eight of those that go out during the project. Uh, six of them will be deployed in a configuration that allows us to do something that we call dual Doppler synthesis. And what all dual Doppler is, is that you, you're able to take two radars, pair the information from those radars to get not just the winds moving toward or away from the radar, but to get winds in uh, all three directions. So north, south, east, west, and, and vertical up down uh, motions. Um, there's some trigonometry, some, some intense math that's involved in that, but you're able to do that with two, two Doppler radars. So, we are going to have six of those radars forming configurations to get multiple areas where we can do that analysis. And that'll give us information about the, the updrafts and downdrafts that I talked about within these lines of storms. And then embedded within the air, those areas of what we call the dual Doppler coverage, we'll have the other two radars, which are going to be what we call rapid scan radars. So they have dishes that rotate very quickly and allow for very, very uh, fast updates of the low levels of the storm. So they'll be going after looking uh, at the actual circulations in the line and trying to get rapid updates as to the evolution of this, these circulations and how they, they form and how they change or dissipate uh, as the line moves through. They'll be targeting those circulations within the broader area of, of this three-dimensional wind, this dual Doppler coverage. So that's, those are the eight mobile radars that'll be going out. Then we have what are called profiling systems. And these are systems that look at the vertical changes in temperature, humidity, and wind speed and direction um, through, through either emitting radar beams similar to the scanning radars, but in a little different configuration, or from emitting uh, non-visible or, or uh, eye-safe lasers, or what we call LIDARs. And so we have 
seven system are going to have seven systems set up in fixed locations across the Mississippi Valley over into the uh, northern Black Belt, re northern extent of the Black Belt region in northeast Mississippi or the Tennessee Valley in North Alabama. And then six profiling systems that will be mobile and they'll be they'll move around. They'll be put in configurations to get uh, the wind profile, what we call the wind profile or the change of wind direction speed with height information and the temperature and humidity profiles from these instruments in uh, configurations ahead of the lines of storms to see how temperature, humidity and, and wind shear change in uh, different locations ahead of a line of storms and how they evolve as a line of storm a line of storms approaches. We'll have 18 balloon sounding systems, so 18 different uh, systems that we can launch balloon uh, weather balloons from to get more of that temperature and humidity and wind speed direction information with height. We'll have arrays of surface instrumentation uh, going uh, being set up ahead of these lines of storms to see how the surface temperature, surface humidity, and surface wind direction, speed, and pressure change ahead of lines of storms. We'll have UASs. We'll have drones going out, and and we'll be doing experiments in the uh, Mississippi Delta region, where we look at how the how well the drones measure temperature, humidity, and wind changes up to 5,000 feet deep into the atmosphere. So there'll be a couple locations set up for that. And then after the event ends, we will have groups studying the damage left behind. So we'll have uh, teams going out again with, with other drone systems and doing aerial mapping of wind damage or tornado damage left over from these lines of storms with the drones. So that, is there's a it's just this enormous suite of information we'll have we also have instruments to measure uh lightning changes in the storms because we're interested in how these updrafts and downdrafts relate to the lightning production in these lines of storms and how that though that lightning production might relate to uh low level rotation and tornado formation um we have instruments to measure the the characteristics of the precipitation of the raindrops that fall out of the storms and how uh, differences in those raindrops and 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 the the size and the uh, the amount the number of concentration of those raindrops can occur uh, or can relate to the the wind uh, damage potential and the tornado potential in lines of storms. So it's it's a comprehensive project. We're literally throwing the kitchen sink of everything we have in terms of being able to collect weather observations at these lines of storms as they move through the Southeast United States. Yeah, yeah, and, and while you were talking, I, I was kind of curious about who all the partners were, so I found them on the, uh, the Perils website. So the National Science Foundation, uh, NOAA NSSL, the National Severe Storms Lab, the Physical Science Laboratory, and the Global Systems Laboratory. And in terms of the universities that you mentioned, University of Oklahoma, University of Alabama, Huntsville, University of Louisiana, Monroe, Purdue, Texas Tech, Penn State, SUNY Stony Brook, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and North Carolina State. So it's a very comprehensive effort. When, when, when's all of this going to get going and how long it's going to last? And what's the study area? Obviously, uh, you can't do this all over the place because there's so much coordination that has to be done. So I imagine there's an area that you're focusing on. So, so technically, we started on March 1st, although the pattern's been quiet up to this point. That 
looks like that might change next week. Though. Of course, that's the case <laughs> when you're trying to study something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's very typical field campaign veterans who've done this before know that's how it goes. But it looks like that might change next week. So, um, but the first year, so it's a two-year project. The first year runs from March 1st uh, through April 30th of this year. And then we'll have a three-month campaign in 2023 from February 8th through May 8th. And there'll be a total, uh, the goal within the combined two years is to have 16 different uh, periods of operation. So 16 different systems that we target within the, the two-year period. Um, in terms of the area, so it's, it's an expansive area and it's really dictated by how, where we can put the mobile radar. So we have to find some areas of the Southeast with a little less trees than, than others. So, so one of the big focuses is along the Mississippi River Valley, where you have the expansive alluvial plain, the Delta region, from the Missouri Boot Hill through eastern Arkansas, west Tennessee, um, the western portion of Mississippi, the, the famous Mississippi Delta region. Then you have uh, the Louisiana Delta, uh, northern northeastern Louisiana, down into the Acadiana region around uh, from Lake Charles to Lafayette to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So that kind of extensive from the, the Missouri boot heel down all the way down through the Delta to the Atchafalaya River Basin. And then the second area forms kind of a C shape from the Tennessee Valley of North Alabama, which is another kind of one of these alluvial plains sort of regions where there's a lot of open expanse agriculture land. And then it wraps around into what's called the Black Belt, which extends from uh, about Tupelo, Mississippi, or a little north of Tupelo, Mississippi, down through uh, just southwest of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, through Selma, Alabama, and ending around Montgomery. So those are the two big kind of areas. And so in within a given what we call IOP or intensive operations period, where we're out actively collecting data, we'll pick an area within one of those two regions that's about 60 to 70 miles long by about 40 to 50 miles wide, where we'll be out collecting data ahead of these storms, concentrating all the instrumentation, focusing in on a specific area that we think has the highest risk of, of tornadoes from a given event. Wow. So quite, quite a bit going on with this event. Uh, when I come back, I want to get into why we hate the term tornado alley. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Tony Liza about perils and QLCSs and tornadoes in the Southeast. And he, he's a part of this effort that is helping scientists better understand these storms, uh, improved warnings, 
uh, and risk communication it doesn't poof come out of, uh, of thin air. I mean, it comes from research and development, including these field campaigns. And, and you've talked a little bit earlier about the fact that one of the reasons it's so important is the Southeast is such a vulnerable population. And in another podcast effort episode, be sure to tune into it with Dr. Stephen Strader at Villanova University. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive on that vulnerability. Before we talk about Tornado Alley and why we hate the term and why I particularly hate the term Dixie Alley, uh, also, uh, a little uh, uh, birdie told me that you think Chicago pizza is the absolute best and that, and that ketchup shouldn't exist. Yes. Yeah, no. You know, I, I agree with you in principle on something that shouldn't exist, but from my lens, it's mustard and mayonnaise. Uh, I think they're, I think they're evil. Um, so is this true about your tornado, uh, your uh, ketchup and, and, and pizza in Chicago? Yeah, I, I am not a ketchup fan with one exception. <laughs> so since I've moved to Oklahoma, I've, uh, there's a Whataburger. I had never had anything. Oh, Whataburger is amazing. We don't have them in the South. <laughs> I know, but the, I've had the spicy the ketchup. I've had the spicy ketchup and it is the one acceptable form of ketchup that I've encountered. So, so Whataburger <laughs> spicy ketchup. Yeah. You know, I had a, we had, I went to uh, Florida state and we had a Whataburger in Florida and Tallahassee. Uh, there are, there's, spotty in the Southeast, but I understand we're getting some here in the Atlanta area yeah. soon. Uh, Whataburger changed my life when I was in college. It was just really good. So I was really happy. And so it's, I hadn't tried the spicy ketchup. I don't think I will because I don't like spicy things, but um, I, I, I actually just like their regular ketchup too. There's something really good about their regular ketchup on fries too. And so is it, is it the typical deep dish, thick cut uh, that you like about the Chicago pizza? So, so what, what a lot of folks don't understand is that there is a thin crust version of Chicago pizza, which if you, is that if you right? yeah, if you grow up in Chicago, that's what you are more accustomed to actually eating. That's the typical pizza you get. So it's, it's a slightly thicker crust than New York style. There's usually a little more sauce, quite a bit more cheese. You can put toppings on it and that the, and it, it's cut in what's called tavern style. So it's squares of, of pieces. So you get little square pieces, you eat little by little. And it's called tavern style because it would be sold at taverns while people were having a good time. And it was the, the one of the bartenders ways to get people to spend more on having a good time at the bar. <laughs> we'll put it that way. So you, you, know, you. You, want, you, know, you know, you want a little bit more, you know, you beer. Yeah. <laughs> so so sure. it's called no, a tavern. That's, that's great. So it's, but it's a, it's, a, it's different. It's distinct from New York style in terms of it's a, the sauce is usually got a different flavor. It can be, it depends on where you go. It's often either a, a pretty sweet sauce in a lot of places, or some places do more of a spicy sauce, spicier sauce version, more of a peppery kind of flavor. Um, but but that's the standard. That's the actual like day to day Chicago style pizza. If you're from Chicago, the deep dish style is really if you've got friends coming to town and they haven't, you know, they want deep dish. It's the special occasion pizza. So it's if you have something I special see. going on, you're celebrating something. Or, then you get the deep dish, but the standard Chicago fare is actually a Chicago style tavern cut thin crust. That is so I just learned something new today and I bet many listeners did as well. So, so you can get all kinds of information here on the Weather Geeks podcast. I love it. But let's talk now, uh, getting back to the topic at hand. Um, I've written over the years in uh, Forbes and I've heard uh, other colleagues like Walker, at Ashley and 
Victor Gensini and others just talk about how we need to move away from the use of these terms alley, particularly we've grown up, many of us hearing about Tornado Alley and the Great Plains. Um, from your perspective, and I, I, I agree with those assessments, why do you dislike the term alley to refer to these regions? Oh, I mean, for one, I think, I don't think that Tornado Alley, as it was historically defined on the plains, really defines where that the absolute region of most tornado occurrence or highest risk is. Um, you know, we're, we're learning, especially since Doppler radar came out and, and now especially since dual pole radar was, was you know, uh, the, the 88Ds, the, the weather service radars were upgraded to dual pole. We're seeing so much more. We're seeing so much more in terms of these circulations, especially smaller circulations, we're seeing more. These circulations in QLCSs, we're seeing them better. With the dual pole, you see the debris as it gets lofted. So even if you knew these circulations existed before, you didn't necessarily know that they were producing tornadoes or that the damage they were producing was tornado. Now you can get a better idea if it starts lofting debris. Um, but you know, I th we're learning that the exposure to the tornado risk, and it's it's not even just the vulnerability or the population, it's just the actual occurrence of tornadoes is probably at least as great in Arkansas, like Eastern Arkansas over in the Mississippi, Alabama, and, and parts of Tennessee, as it is on the plains. Um, you know, you think, think about this, you compare two tornadoes of the same size, I mean, we can go with any size, any duration, right? Right, A tornado that lasts for 20 minutes, let's say. On the plains, the storms off, often, not always, but often move slower. They're usually about maybe 30 miles an hour. You can get faster moving storms on the plains, but it's less common. Um, so that, that 30 mile an hour moving tornado that, goes, that lasts for 20 minutes will cover 10 miles. In the southeast, that tornado more often than not will probably be moving 50 miles an hour faster. So let's say it's moving 60 miles an hour. It, that same tornado that lasts for 20 minutes is going to cover double the distance and double the land. And so, you know, even though the, the number of tornadoes might be might still be greater on the plains, though we don't know that for sure. We don't. The, a given tornado often covers more land and has the the it has more land to expose. And then of course, with the higher population density, more people are exposed to it in the Southeast by both the a function of how many people live in the area and the uh, amount of land that it covers moving faster than a given tornado. So it's just, it's, we're learning more, especially as we can better detect these tornadoes, we better document them that the actual exposure and the actual risk is at least as high in the Southeast, if not higher. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen research from uh, Gensini and others at Northern Illinois that show that there, you know, over time, there seems to be even more of a shift uh, at, into the Southeast in yeah. terms of that activity. And uh, I think there are still ongoing questions as to why that is. And so I agree. I just think from a messaging and a communication standpoint, uh, it's just an archaic term, these alley terms that need to go away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to see that professionals like you that actually study this are in agreement. 
as we start to wind down this podcast, and by the way, I want to give a shout out to executive producer, Mike Chesterfield, because I know he'll appreciate that dissertation on Chicago style pizza earlier because he, he grew up in the Chicago area as well. And I, I actually just text him while we're recording this. I said, you're going to really love uh, Tony's uh, breakdown of, of pizza there on this current episode. So I want to give a, a, a shout out to my longtime co- uh, colleague and collaborator, Mike Chesterfield at the Weather Channel, who's uh, been the longtime executive producer of the Weather Geeks TV show and podcast. Uh, last question. What other research are you involved in? So um, my, my PhD was studying the role of terrain on severe storm and tornado behavior. I looked at the uh, Northeast Alabama plateaus uh, where there's a statistical maximum in the formation of tornadoes. And we found some reasons, some impacts that the, the plateaus have on the environment in terms of increasing the, the wind speed and the wind shear over top of them and, and uh, decreasing the cloud base height, which we know is a favorable condition for tornadoes. Oftentimes you have cloud bases lower to the ground. And so we found that in the observations uh, that we took over the first few years of Vortex Southeast, that these wind shear and, and, and cloud-based height changes occur repeatedly and are, are somewhat predictable in terms of how they occur and ahead of tornadic storms in northeastern Alabama. Um, now, today, the research I do outside of, of, of organizing the Perils Project and, and the broader Vortex Southeast, Vortex USA project, I, I've been doing a lot of work I'm looking at um, supercells and, and cell mergers, how cell mergers can impact the individual supercell storms. So I've kind of stepped out of the QLCSs a little bit. I have a few, a couple papers on QLCS cases, QLCS evolution too, tornado evolution also. Um, but I've been looking more at supercells lately. Uh, I've been doing a deep dive into April 27th, 2011, a paper that is currently uh, in its second round of review. Uh, hopefully to be published sometime this year, will actually document all of these uh, supercells in detail that occurred in the Southeast United States, all the tornado producing supercells from April 27, 2011, a, do- a full documentation of all the tornado families that occurred, the, the groups of tornadoes that each supercell produced. So basically tell the, the paper will tell the, the full detailed accounting of how the, the really destructive wave of tornadoes occurred and, and unfolded on the afternoon of April 27th and look at the radar characteristics of them, how they formed the early in their life cycles, how quickly they evolved, um, things like that, and how they related to uh, differences in the environment across the Southeast on that afternoon. I've also done quite a bit of work on tornado damage assessment. So um, looking at the, the damage left behind from tornadoes, another paper that will hopefully be out sometime within the next couple of months, looks at a tornado that occurred in Northeast Mississippi back in 2019, uh, near the Columbus, Mississippi, uh, WSR-88D or Weather Service Radar. Uh, where the tornado formed in the area near the radar where the radar can't actually get any data and then moved out of that area. And so you've got these, you've got a, a measurement of the wind speed near the near the surface in this tornado from the weather service radar as it's mowing down forest land, which we, we relate the, the tree damage and all of the intense force destruction from that tornado to what the radar is seeing, which is a unique kind of like, luck, you know, serendipitous opportunity. 
but I've got a, a couple papers, so I have a couple papers on tornado damage assessment also. So that kind of sums it up. I, I'm a what we call an observationalist. I I don't do so much with the computer models that a lot of research is based off nowadays. I I look at observations of the atmosphere. That's kind of my core uh, core research area, and and relating it in all sorts of different ways. The terrain on severe storms looking at supercell evolution, cell merger effects, and uh, damage assessment, looking at tornado damage and, and, and analyzing it. That's kind of, those are my main thrusts of research. Wow, just really exciting stuff. I'm glad we had a chance to talk to you today. Where, where can people find you in, on Twitter or social media if you're on there or websites for perils or anything else you'd like to share? So, so yeah, I mean, so I, you can share the link to the NSSL perils webpage if you want more information about perils. Um, I do have a personal Twitter account. It's at TLizaWX, um, but you're not going to find a whole ton of weather. I'll occasionally share weather things, but that's more my... Uh, that's more of my random thoughts and musings, which may or may not entertain the audience. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm the same way on my Twitter as well. I mean, I, I, it's a lot of weather and climate stuff, but it's certainly a lot of other things too, because guess what? We're not just meteorologists. We have thoughts on other things. No. Yeah. And I mean, when, and, and weather is, I'm one of those people that turned my hobby into my career. So, but I do have other interests. If you ever want Whatever you want to know about the state of Chicago sports, you'll find it on on that account. <laughs> so it's right now it's yeah, not too pretty. I, I, <laughs> well, I was going to say, well, the Bulls are doing really well yeah. right now. I'm a, I'm a Hawks fan, so although we beat you all the other day, but I, I can talk sports with you as well. I'm a big sports fan as well, so I'm love to hear a weather uh, uh, sports geek convergence here. But we we have to end it there. Uh, before we do, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Michelle Larue. I think I got that right, Michelle. Michelle is affectionately known as the Enso Queen at the NOAA Climate Prediction Center. <clears throat> she lives and breathes everything related to El Nino Southern Oscillation. She leads the group that produces the official Enso outlooks for NOAA. She contributes regular to the Enso blog, trying to break down the often complicated science into layperson's terms. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and uh, we'll talk to you next time on the podcast. Have a great one.